Long ago, when I was just a wee banana, my first girlfriend broke up with me during the summer before ninth grade. We'd been in the same class, and I'd been head over heels for her while we were going steady, and especially for making out with her. And she'd had a thing for me since, like, third or fourth grade. So when she called me from the county fair and dumped me, well, my poor banana heart was stone-shattered. We'd started going steady at a party back in December, and we were basically each other's first everything, except sexual partner. That's why she broke up with me. She wanted to have sex, and I did not. I'd like to say I was worried about the consequences, but in truth, the whole enterprise of sex just seemed scary, messy, and in those pre-internet days, poorly researched. Anyway, after the breakup, I spent about a month doing all kinds of things to win her back. As much as I might enjoy regaling you with the tales of Milton heartbreak and what I'm sure were just sad little pathetic attempts, I forgot whatever most of those things were long ago. I'm sure I left notes in her locker, sent embarrassingly purple poems to her in the mail. Did I Lloyd Dobler her, holding a boombox whilst Peter Gabriel went on about doorways and resolutions? No, my taste in music was nowhere near that good. I called the local radio station and dedicated Def Leppard's Love Bites to her. I tried really hard to make sure my parents and siblings neither heard me on the phone nor noticed that I was upset, but the DJ, she knew. She heard my little banana voice crack when I told her to dedicate it to Moira. And she let out a long, aww, which somehow made things way worse. I hung up the phone immediately and hurried to the bathroom, the one room in the house where a man can cry alone. I don't remember whether I actually listened to the dedication. I never knew whether Moira heard it either. The other lasting memory, as these things usually go, is the last memory, the final heartbreak. This was about a month after she dumped me. It was summer, and so despite being classmates, I hadn't seen her at all during that time. I saddled up on my blue 10-speed Schwinn one day and rode into town, probably just off to buy comic books at the local pharmacy, but I don't know, maybe I wanted a milkshake, which has long been the preferred beverage of the emotionally upset banana. Moira lived in town, and yeah, there were a lot of routes I could take to get wherever I was going, but I decided to go past her house, you know, as one does. Her mom happened to be outside, and she flagged me down. She chatted with me for a moment, and then said, Moira misses you sometimes, you know? I understand now that she was just trying to help me feel a little better. Maybe her mom liked me more than the new guy. Yes, Moira already had a new guy, and that did not sit well with me, but yes, Moira already had a new guy. But it wasn't exactly the right thing for her to say. All my banana brain heard was a solution to my problem. If she missed me and I missed her, then there wasn't really a problem, was there? Well, except for maybe the new guy, but all I needed to do was show Moira that I missed her too. She would instantly see the error of her ways and pick me over that new guy, probably that very afternoon. After spending some time riding around town pondering my situation, an infallible plan eventually coalesced. I decided to stop in at the pharmacy, but I forewent my usual comic books. I had a purpose that day something that needed more than four colors and a well-timed catchphrase. It was time to put away childish things, my childish brain decided. 
The cashier, who to that point had only ever helped me purchase comics, baseball cards, candy bars, and blank cassette tapes, thankfully kept her thoughts to herself as I set the red rose on the counter. I rode back to Moira's house, not even trying to hide the rose. I was a quote-unquote man on a mission. Moira would once again be mine by sundown. When I knocked on her door, Moira answered, but the look on her face did not exactly stir confidence. Nevertheless, I pressed on. I told her what her mother had said. I told her that I missed her too. And with probably the last wholly innocent smile of my life, I gave her the rose. And here's the clearest thing I remember. She didn't care, in the slightest. I could have been offering her a nice, clean, shiny piece of driveway for all she cared. Not only didn't she care about the rose, or that I missed her, but she didn't care that she missed me. There was nothing in her manner that changed, and that's what made it finally sink in. She just didn't care anymore, and nothing I could do was going to change that. I took a long, scenic route home because, to a kid with a heart freshly turned to stone, an extra ten miles in the July heat meant nothing. During that ride... I internalized something that is causing me a lot of trouble now, years and years along on the banana timeline, where my wife, my dear Ethel, does a few things on a regular basis that I interpret as her not caring. What I internalized back then, the dust of cornfields sticking to my wet cheeks as I rode aimlessly, when I really boil it down is, when my best efforts are met with indifference, I may as well stop wasting my time. Welcome to Stick It Out, a podcast about life, caregiving, and sometimes working shit out on the air. Hi there, I'm your host, Milton Bananas. I've been the primary caregiver to my wife for about three years now as we wait for Ethel to be listed for a double lung transplant. I don't normally tell stories of long-lost loves, but the loves we've lost over time affect the loves we've gained, don't they? I found an article on Psychology Today that gets at how the Moira story affects and informs the Ethel story. The article is about self-sabotaging behaviors which is absolutely what the quote-unquote moral of the Moira story could turn into. The article says that self-sabotaging behaviors may have begun as unconscious survival strategies. I'll quote a paragraph here and I'll link to it in the show notes. Research into the unconscious underpinnings of our behaviors suggests that all mental life has an unconscious component. What we call self-sabotage in the present moment could very well be motivated by unconscious goals and adaptations that, in the past, saved our life, or, at the very least, preserved our psychological health. What we term a maladaptive behavior or a self-fulfilling prophecy today was, at one time, a survival strategy. It's a deceptively simple little paragraph. Let's unpack it a little bit. Firstly, it's saying that if your brain is functioning in a mostly normal way, both a conscious world and an unconscious world are being processed at all times simultaneously. Think of a child who accidentally touches a hot stove. From that moment on, her brain will always process that unconscious memory when she consciously approaches the stove. 
This serves to keep the child from consciously touching the stove again, which is essentially what the first part of that little paragraph is getting at. Secondly, it's saying that self-sabotaging behaviors can result from adaptations that previously saved our life, or at least kept us from losing our minds. In the case of the child who touched the stove, the adaptation of fearing heat probably saved a few more crispy fingers. But imagine that she developed a fear not just of heat or fire, but of all things reddish-orange. This would be an adaptation that saved her life, and especially to a pre-verbal child, it might not be a noticeable difference, because the end result is the same. She doesn't burn her little fingers anymore. But let's say later in life, our little girl has grown up, and what she wants more than anything in the world is to be in law enforcement. She gets a job working security at a private prison. Good pay, good benefits, opportunity for advancement, all that good shit. The job's not too hard either, as it's at a minimum security joint. Everything's going along just great for a year or so. And then one day, during a minor disagreement, she gets kind of rough with one of the inmates. She gets a talking to the next day, and then an official verbal warning when it happens again. So on and so on until she's fired after she's ripped the teeth out of an inmate who was way above her weight class. So, she gets another job, maybe out of state where her rep doesn't follow her. Maybe at a place that doesn't care so much when bad things happen to inmates. Things are great again for a while. Maybe she even settles in with someone, gets a little two-bedroom together. But then one day the prison librarian says the wrong thing in the wrong tone and our anti-heroine here yanks out 40% of the librarian's red hair before anyone takes the yelling inmate seriously. That's when some court-appointed therapist might put together that all the inmates were wearing orange at the time she assaulted them. And of course, the librarian's hair was auburn as well. And then through some exploration, they may figure out that her young mind didn't adopt fear heat as a survival strategy, but fear reddish-orange. And so she was self-sabotaging her jobs because she was unconsciously processing a fear of reddish-orange. That's a long version of what that excerpt is getting at. Sometimes, we intentionally fuck up our lives because we learned something long ago that helped us survive in that moment, but has since ceased being applicable to the world around us. It's just a great deal of fun being human, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, at the time, on that ride home from Moira's, where I tossed the rose in some ditch somewhere, I was still in the middle of a fairly abusive childhood. And we may talk later about how being an abuse survivor both helps and harms your everyday caregiver. But the point is that here was Moira, who'd said she'd loved me, the second woman in my life to say such a thing, and yet... Neither woman's actions seem to fit well with my understanding of love. I see now that in order to become a really full-fledged human being at some point, I had to decide that my understanding of what love is was simply wrong. I don't think I would have survived my teenage years if I hadn't. I knew where mom kept her sleeping pills and I knew how many I'd need to take. When all my best efforts are met with indifference... I may as well stop wasting my time. That's an adaptation that I've been using unconsciously for decades. Okay, so now let's get at why it's a problem. 
Marriage is usually at least about the idea of a shared life, which means sharing the work as much as the rest, the pain as much as the joy, the bottom as much as the top. That's how the idea is presented, anyway. Or at least I assume that very few people propose by saying, I want to legally bind our lives together, but you're going to do all the shitty parts and wait on me 24-7. That's what spousal caregiving is, though, to one degree or another. It means putting off a meal for another hour or so because he or she has an appointment you weren't told about. It means cutting short time with family or friends because he or she had an incident back home. And sometimes that incident turns out to have been manufactured for one reason or another. It means that no matter how much, how often, or how intensely you fight, there will be no makeup sex. Caregiving changes the marriage. It can become something you never would have signed up for in the first place, a wholly imbalanced relationship. According to AARP, estimates of the divorce rate for couples in which one spouse has a serious illness is as high as 75%. The article goes on to say spousal caregivers are said to be more prone to depression than adult children who are caregivers. These spouses often lose not only physical intimacy with their ill loved ones, but also deep friendship if those partners are no longer emotionally or cognitively capable of serving as their confidants. They frequently have to mourn their past joys as a couple along with the dreams they had for future happiness. Still quoting from the article, if spousal caregivers decide to stay in their relationships, they are often racked with resentment because they are giving so much more than they're getting back. If they decide to leave, they are frequently racked with guilt for abandoning the people they are supposed to love. End quote. I'll put the link to that article in the show notes as well. But let's take a moment right here and acknowledge something from that article. If you feel resentment towards your significant other, no matter how deeply you love them, it's totally okay. The resentment has little to do with how you feel about your person. Rather, it shows that you still value yourself. Resentment is what you feel when you feel as though you're being used. And if you feel used, it means you also feel you deserve not to be used, which means you value yourself enough. So the feeling itself, while it feels negative, its source is actually positive. So don't feel bad about feeling resentment in this situation. Anyway, here's my real point. As I've said before, I've known since early 2021 that the choice for Ethel was transplant or death. And while I recognize that that's a difficult thing to accept, much of what Ethel has or has not done since her body began rejecting her lungs makes very little sense to me. My best efforts at helping her throughout this time have been repeatedly met with what seems to me to be indifference. And often enough, her actions or inaction worked directly against my best efforts. It's the Moira thing all over again. Why am I standing here holding a rose out to someone who'd rather be watching concrete dry in the sun? When my best efforts are met with indifference, I may as well stop wasting my time. I have to let go of this, at least for now. It's just one more thing in the middle of this caregiving nightmare that I have to learn to let go of and hope I will be the better for it. But if there's to be an after transplant, and if we're still going to be bananas at that time, I have to let go of some things for now. 
I can already feel myself getting pissy at the thought. That's a pretty good sign, though, that I need to let go of it. A good rule to follow. The more you want to leave claw marks on it, the more you need to let it go. It can be done, though. I know it can. I have the tools because I've been going to therapy for years. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about therapy. And let's start with the question everyone asks. Why go? I have three unimpeachable reasons. You ready? One, you're a human being. Two, you're a human being living in a very difficult and scary time in our world. And three, you're a caregiver. If you think that's not enough reason, think about what goes through your mind when you're cleaning up shit at 4 a.m. or when an entire conversation with your person seems to have been wiped out of existence or how often you say to yourself, no one notices me unless I don't do something. Or think about how you have a whole list of needs just like everybody else does. You want to be touched, to be seen and heard, to be fucked, to be loved, to have someone care about your needs even half as much as you care about someone else's. Therapy can help you come to terms with all of those things, my friends. I promise you. You may not arrive at the solution you now hope for, but where you'll end up will be even better. Like most things, you just have to stick it out longer than you probably want to. Now, let's talk about the taboo of therapy. And first off, I want to talk to the men out there. We're going to talk just between us for a second. You've heard that therapy is unmanly. You're not sure how you know because your friends are all super manly, as befits a manly hombre such as yourself. But you've gotten the impression that to go to therapy is unmanly. Now listen, I know I'm not exactly the most manly of men, okay? The story started with me turning down sex, alright, I got it. But I know that every idea of manhood that I have, except for the ones that came from my dad and other adult males in my life, every single other idea of manhood was given to me by someone who just wants to sell me shit. The Marlboro Man. Every dude in every beer commercial ever. Tom Cruise's actual life, but like at Dwayne Johnson's actual size. Truck commercials, oh my F-150 with Brian Cranston's rigid second tenor voice all but massaging your scrotum. And holy breaking bad Batman. Jesse Pinkman's trying to sell me on sports betting like his very penis depends on it. Listen up, mis amigos. Fuck that bullshit. You know what is manly? Unquestionably manly? Granted, this is coming from a guy with a moisturizing routine, but still, the most manly thing is deciding for yourself what it means to be a man. The most manly of men never lets other men tell him what he thinks. Do you think the most interesting man in the world lets other people tell him when he needs to stop drinking? No, my friends. The manly man goes home and thinks about shit carefully, glaring at the fire pit so hard it begins to smolder all on its own. That's what real men do. Figure shit out the best way they know how for themselves, preferably while lighting something on fire. So why not let a therapist help you figure that out? They probably won't let you light something on fire in their office, but they also aren't just trying to sell you shit you don't need by preying upon your self-image either. Now, ladies, before you go running for the hubs or the BF or whatever sits you got going on to be like, listen to what your fellow penis haver just said, 
The same thing is true for you, as you well know. You've been sold womanhood for as long as you've been able to sell your womanhood. But then there's also the fact that the world has been tragically, in this podcaster's opinion, run by men. So the ideas you've been buying very much have very questionable agendas. As a friend of mine used to say, men are the worst. We must never forget that. Now, for every dude who feels a little, man, I feel like a woman, and every woman who feels a little, I want to be your man, well, I can't speak a great deal about transgender issues, I'll admit. But I applaud anyone who struggles against what society thinks they should be. Most of you are probably in therapy, as it's typically a requirement for gender transition. I hope that's the case, and I hope it's helping you with your transition as well. Okay, so, we all have pretty valid reasons to go to therapy. We're humans, the world really sucks right now, and we're caregivers. And we all understand that we're probably better off figuring out for ourselves who we are, rather than letting men and money decide who we are. That takes care of the why and the why not. But how do you get started? That's a good question. Let Papa Banana spell it out for you. Here we go. If you have insurance, look at the list of providers that they cover. Scroll through the list, but don't look at the names. Look at the addresses. You want to find one place that has like 10 different therapists in your network. If you do not have insurance, you're obviously more limited in your options. But most clinics that provide low or no-cost therapy have more than one therapist available, so the following advice still holds up. Now, decide whether you feel more comfortable talking with a man or a woman. Myself, I'm most comfortable talking to trees, although I'm warming up to chatting with the sweaters here in this closet of a vocal studio. But if I have to talk to a human, I prefer to talk to women. Don't worry about what that decision says about you. You already know. Just accept it and move on. Back to that list of therapists that your insurance covers. Some might specify a type of therapy. If you know for certain that the more so-called new age techniques work for you or interest you, that's who you call. Same goes with any other specialization. Or if it's super important to you that they have a therapy dog or that they offer therapy in a certain language. If not, just go with the nicest sounding name on the list. If he or she turns out to be your therapist in the long term, you'll be glad you're not seeing Dr. Woody Hancock because you're going to say it a lot. Before you go to the first appointment, plan something for immediately after. Something that doesn't suck. Schedule it with a friend, but you don't have to tell the friend why. Again, I can't recommend milkshakes enough, but if it's cold outside, well, I'll quote Virginia Woolf. Soup is cuisine's kindest course. You won't want to go to the appointment, but you'll want to do the other thing, and you're less likely to back out of the other thing if you invite a friend, is the point. One more thing before you go to the appointment. This is critical. Take some time to think about the people in your life to whom you've really listened, especially as an adult. Friends, family, your pastor maybe, a colleague or boss. Someone you really know, not like Oprah or something. Think about the people who, when they said shit, you took it to heart, even if you strongly suspected that they were full of shit when they said it. There are probably one or two qualities that each of them share. That's what you're looking for in your therapist. For me, and you can take from this what you will, I knew I needed my therapist 
to be smarter than me, and I needed a therapist who can keep up with me verbally. I talk fast when I'm not recording, and I think faster, especially when I'm cornered. And the bottom line was, I needed a therapist who could keep up, or at least knew when to make me slow down. Again, don't worry about what that says about you. You already know. Just accept it and move on. Go to the appointment. The therapist's job is to get you to talk, and you can fight them on it if you want. It's your money and your appointment. My advice? Size up your opponent, because you'll see your therapist as the killmonger to your T'Challa sometimes, or the Professor Moriarty to your Sherlock Holmes when the battle is more like 5D chess. You really will. That's okay. That's their job. They are trained to know how to be seen as your enemy, but not lose your trust. So get to know your enemy now before they know too much about you. After that first appointment, go hang out with your friend. Talk about the therapist or not, whichever you find comfortable. At some point later, next day, later that week, whatever, you have to ask yourself, does this therapist share those qualities that I came up with earlier? If you don't know yet, go to the next appointment. If you feel like you want to cancel, remind yourself that you're sizing up the therapist, not the other way around, because it's way more fun to be the cat than the mouse. Do that for as many appointments as you need. If the therapist doesn't work for you, request a different therapist in that same office. You already know they're covered by your insurance, and sometimes they can, with your permission, share files. That way you don't have to do all the intake stuff all over again. When you find a therapist that has those qualities you made note of earlier, now you're ready to do some real work. When I first met my therapist, whom I've seen for about five years now, she said to me, my friend, even your walls have walls. And let me tell you, I was proud. Of course I was proud. I spent a lifetime building those walls. The intricate labyrinth they comprised was my masterpiece. But I was also pissed that she'd noticed because that was a violation of the point of all of the fucking walls. That's how I knew she was the right therapist. You won't always like your therapist. You'll skip sessions just because you're mad at something they said. You'll wake up feeling ill, your brain and body giving you a ready excuse. All I can say is, keep going. Unless you worry for your safety, or your therapist isn't helping you feel heard, stick it out. It may take a while, but it really will help you be better. I don't exactly want this to be what they call a process story, but if you need further evidence that therapy can work, I'll tell you that this episode did not at all start out or even include the Moira story. As I wrote what I thought this episode would be about, my mind kept returning to that moment, the rose in my hand, Moira's face as unreceptive as a loaf of bread. My therapist has taught me not to ignore these kinds of things, and more importantly, she has taught me how to approach those memories. Some memories want to run away as soon as I tilt a little light their way. Some memories want to play at full volume, no matter what I do. Still others want to condense themselves into one moment or image or usually sound. I have learned over years of therapy how to serve them a cup of coffee or tea or maybe a cigarette and scotch depending on how grisly the memory is and have a conversation with them. That's more or less what I did, which turned into the story that opened this episode. It turned out that it wasn't that moment. It was the moment later when I threw the rose into the ditch that I needed to get to. 
And here's what I want you most to understand. My problem isn't solved. I still feel how I felt when I started this episode a week ago. There's still this unsettling undercurrent in my mind and spirit, which, given the right or perhaps wrong set of circumstances, could blow wide open into some spectacular self-sabotage. I have a ton of experience sabotaging my own ass, and believe me, I could crash and burn so fast you'd think I was Kevin Spacey's career. But I already know I won't. Well, probably. I always reserve the right to have a complete fucking meltdown. But I don't think I will. While my mental work on this issue isn't done, getting to this point has already helped me exert a little control over the memory and a little control over how it informs what's going on today. That's what matters right now. Therapy doesn't exist to solve your problems. It doesn't exist to tell you what to do to make your decisions easier. It has a completely different purpose. Long ago, attempting to resolve a dispute, one Zen master asked an applicant, show me your original face, the face you had before your parents were born. That's what therapy should be and can be about, figuring out who you were before you had to become someone else and then learning how to present your original face to the world. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode today. This was a difficult one to write, and I hope I've convinced a few of you to seek out therapy if you feel you need it. If you would like to reach out, you can find me at user Mr. Milton Bananas on both Reddit and Discord. If you've enjoyed this show, or if you have some constructive criticism, please rate and review the show in whatever app you listen to it. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, be well out there, everyone. <laughs>